We'll pick up verses 14 and go all the way to the end of the chapter uh, tonight. I want to remind you while you're turning there that the book is not necessarily written in chronological order. Passages of it are, but if you start at um, if you start at Revelation about chapter four or five and then read through the rest of the book, there's like resets that take place, and and so it'll walk you through the whole tribulation period, and you come right up to the end of it, and then a chapter or two later, you feel like well, we're talking about the same thing again. There are different there are different aspects provided for us in the uh, in the book for the various events, and they're not always laid out chronologically, and so that might throw you a little bit. Let's just review how we got to chapter fourteen. In chapters one through and three, uh, one through three, we introduced the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as the revelation. And, I, and you remember our very first message in this book. We said that the top of your Bible, at the top of Revelation chapter one, it should not say the revelation of John the Apostle. It should say the revelation of Jesus Christ because the book reveals Jesus. It's not revealing John. Uh, John is the one who thankfully was used by the Holy Spirit to write this book down for us, but this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's even proper, it's, it's acceptable for you to call this book the revelation. We don't do that with Matthew or Mark, but this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapters 2 and 3, we have those seven letters to the churches, seven literal historical churches. They did exist. They assembled like we do. They assembled on the first day of the week like we do. But they also, those seven churches also represent periods of time throughout church history, and we can trace them. And we've, we would say today, we are in what is called the Laodicean Age. Uh, and that's not hard to see when you look at churches throughout our uh, throughout our world, beginning at chapter four and all the way through verse uh, chapter eleven, chapters four through eleven, you have pretty much the chronology of the tribulation period, an eight chapter collection of what's going on in heaven and what's going on on earth during that seven during that seven year time. We are in chapters twelve, thirteen, and fourteen, a group of three chapters where there's been a pause button pushed, and there's not an advancement of the chronology. We're not following necessarily a chronology, because in chapter 12, we went all the way back to the beginning of the tribulation period, the first three and a half years, and now we've advanced through it again from a different perspective. Our focus in chapter 12, 13, and 14 is not so much the chronology of the seven-year period, it's, it's focused more on the characters, the people. Uh, we didn't know about Antichrist in the first part of this book. We didn't hear about the false prophet in the first part of this book. They were introduced to us toward the middle of the book, and these several visions that John has had have walked us again through the tribulation period. When we come to the end of our text, or, or our text tonight, which is the end of chapter number 14, we are looking again into the heat and the horror of the tribulation period, the final days of that tribulation. John is going to give us a, he's going to give us a, a glimpse tonight at the end of the tribulation, the coming of Jesus Christ, the terrible judgment. Uh, that's what we're looking at. And so I've entitled this tonight, When God's Court is Called to Order. There's some very graphic um, language that's used. In fact, the language that's used at the end of chapter 14 is found, is found elsewhere in Scripture, Old and New Testament. 
Well, we're talking about the second coming of Christ. And let me, let me pause and say this to you, that the second coming of Christ is revealed to us in Scripture in two parts. There's the, the rapture, and then there's the return. The second coming of Christ, you can break that up into two parts, separated by seven years. There's the rapture of the church, and then there is the return of Jesus Christ. In the rapture, you know this, you're the, you're the Sunday night crowd. In the rapture of the church, he doesn't come back to the earth. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we meet him in the clouds. But when he comes back to earth at the second coming, the Bible says he's coming back to the Mount of Olives. And his feet will touch down on the earth, and he will set up, after a battle that doesn't last very long, he's going to set up a 1,000-year reign and will physically reign from the city of Jerusalem, sitting on the throne of David, 1,000 years so let me make an introductory statement here, and then we'll, we'll get into our text. When Jesus came the first time, he came as a savior to give his life on the cross so that sin might be paid for and sinners might be set free. When he comes the second time, he is coming as a judge to destroy sin, Satan, and all those who stand in defiance to God. When he comes the second time, he is coming, the Bible uses words like this, saying he will come in power, in glory, and in judgment. And the indication is there's not one person on this earth that's going to stand against him. He is going to be victorious. He's coming very differently. There's going to be no cross for him when he comes this time. There will be a crown on his head, no tree on which he will hang, but a throne on which he will sit. First and second comings, of Jesus Christ to planet earth couldn't be more different. So let's look tonight at the last several verses of chapter 14 and see uh, see this period of time that I, I've entitled when God's court is called to order. Let's start reading at verse number 14. Chapter 14, verse 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat, like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came from out, uh, out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. We'll stop. I'll stop right there uh, at the end of that chapter. And here you have the return of Jesus Christ to planet earth, and he is meeting out judgment. Now this is very different from this morning's message. This, morning mes- this morning's message, what the end holds for the saint, 
it's encouraging, it's glorious, it's our hope. It's the, it's the reason we can patiently work in this world. Uh, this tonight is, it returns to the sobering truth that Jesus Christ is going to judge the world with an even greater judgment than that of Noah's flood. And so we'll, we'll look at this passage tonight. Let's, let's focus uh, our attention on this one that's sitting on the cloud because he, he captures the attention of this, of this text. And let's start with the Lord and his returning there in verse number 14. This first image is of the Lord Jesus Christ sitting on a cloud. He's wearing a crown and he has a sickle in his hand. You know what a sickle is. You've seen those before. It's a, it's a sharp curved blade and it has really one use. Its use is for reaping. Its use is for cutting down. It's not a, uh, it is not a fine, uh, it's not an instrument of, of fine tuning. There are certain tools that we have and they're not, uh, they're not meticulous at all. And the sickle is one of them. It cuts a wide swath. You've seen those two-handed, uh, those two-handed sickles that you, you go through. Uh, some people call them a scythe, I think. Um, you have the, you have the picture here of Jesus on a cloud. That's comforting. Wearing a crown. That's comforting. Holding a sharp sickle, the Bible says. That's disconcerting. Let's first of all, this Lord and his returning, let's first talk about his person. There's no doubt here about who Jesus is, uh, who is being discussed here. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls him the Son of Man. That phrase, the Son of Man, was it's one of the titles that was given to Jesus while he was on earth. In fact, it's the most used title that Jesus gave himself. Whenever he spoke of himself in the third person, he would say, most of the time, the Son of Man comes to seek and save that which is lost. The Son of Man, 84 times in the gospel, Jesus is referred to as the the Son of Man. It identifies the humanity of Jesus Christ. It emphasizes that he is the God-man, that side of him. All God, 100% God, yes, 100% man at the same time. This title, Son of Man, points to his humanity. It speaks of his sufferings and his sacrifice. So John is seeing the one who came to earth and gave his life as a ransom for sin. He's seeing Jesus Christ himself. You can make a note that Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 and Luke chapter 21 and verse 27 both say the same thing, that this is how Jesus is going to return to earth. He's coming back in the clouds. Here he's... He's sitting on a cloud. He seems rather comfortable. He's he's at peace with what's about to take place. It's a terrible judgment that's coming to earth, but I want to remind you, and I've said it before, but I, I think it's imperative that we remember this. It is a righteous judgment that's coming to the earth. It's not vindictive. It's... Uh, It's not uh, done about in a retaliatory spirit. It is a righteous, holy judgment that is coming to earth. God's judgments are true and righteous altogether, Scripture said. This is his person. This one riding on the cloud, wearing the crown with the sickle in his hand. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. His position. His position. He's wearing a golden crown, it said. That's the word that's used to mark the uh, laurel wreath that was given to the ancient Olympians who won their competition. 
Their crown was actually a laurel wreath, but the Bible says here it's a golden crown on his head. It's revealing him as the king, capital K, as king. Jesus is seen here by John not as the carpenter's son. He's seeing Jesus in a, in a way he never saw him back in the gospel. When he, was, when he was with Jesus, you remember what Peter said? We walked with him and we, we handled him. We touched Jesus. We had our arm around him. This is, the, this is the Jesus that John at the Last Supper laid his head on the chest of the Lord Jesus Christ. But John's seeing him in a completely different light now. He's wearing this golden crown. This isn't the carpenter's son. This isn't a good rabbi. This is not the son of Mary. This is the king of kings that he's seeing coming back on this, on this cloud. He sees the one who invaded Satan's territory and who has carried off victory now coming to claim it. He sees the one who has walked through the valley of the shadow of death and defeated death. He sees the one who shed his blood on the cross and who rose victoriously on the third day. He sees the king coming to take possession of his domain. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. And this is when Jesus comes to make that verse very plain to everybody. This is my planet. Satan is today the prince of the power of the air, but he has delegated authority. Jesus is coming to claim it for his own. When Jesus comes back, there's not going to be a vote required at the UN as to who's going to rule the world. Somehow the Antichrist is going to come to world power, and he's going to be, and I don't know if that's through the UN. Uh, I don't know those things. Through our, through our uh, way of thinking tonight, we would say that probably functions somehow through the UN and its Security Council and all this takes place and Antichrist somehow gets elected and he is positioned as the world leader. But I would say this, that the Antichrist's power in this world is very different because his power is going to be delegated power. Christ's power is innate It is executive power. He will be king because that's who he is. Antichrist is going to be put into his position of world leadership by others. Jesus is going to come into the world and assert that he is the true king and he will take, he will take sovereign leadership of the world just because of who he is. He has this executive power. His person, it's the Lord Jesus. His position, he's the sovereign king coming to take place, uh, coming to take control rather of his planet. And then his power, that is seen in this sharp sickle that he is holding. An instrument that in John's day was used mostly to harvest wheat. That was their big, uh, that was the big use of the sickle. It was harvesting wheat. When Jesus returns, he's coming to do two things. He's coming to gather his to gather his own like a farmer taking in his crops, but he's also coming to cut down the wicked like the farmer would the tares. He's coming with a two a twofold purpose here. And that unfolds in these next few verses, verses 15 through 19. We've all heard it said before, Jesus is going either to be your savior or he's going to be your judge. And that's absolutely true. We receive forgiveness for him. He is our savior. We don't receive forgiveness from from him. He's going to be our judge. I I love the way John Phillips put this. And the first time I heard this, I thought that makes 
so much sense. John Phillips said, when it comes to Jesus Christ, we all have this choice of a free pardon or a fair trial. You don't want a fair trial. I don't want a fair trial. What I want is that free pardon. Because all of us are guilty, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. So if I stand and demand that I want a fair trial, I am in deep trouble. Because a fair trial has me sentenced for my sin. But if there's a God who can offer me a free pardon, an eternal get out of hell free card, I will take that all day. You don't want, and I don't want a fair trial. What we want is a free pardon. He's coming with the sickle. So take advantage of that free pardon before you have to face him as judge. His, his returning, the Lord and his returning. And then verses 15 through, down through um, 19, it's the Lord and his reaping. It's the judgment. And the, and the Bible does this. The Holy Spirit inspired John to put this in some agricultural terms that people in John's day would understand. And fortunately, we can too. These next five verses, from 15 down to 19, they unfold the Lord's, the Lord's plan to bring judgment to the earth. The first time he came, he came as a sower. He was sowing the seed of the gospel of grace. The Son of Man, Luke chapter 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. That's why he came. The first time he came as a sower, but the second time he's coming as the reaper. And he's going to separate saints from sinners. There are two harvests mentioned in these verses, but both of them are talking about the same judgment. This is not two separate judgments. This is two different aspects of the exact same judgment. God is coming to judge the world, and it talks about harvests. It talks about uh, the harvest in the scripture a lot of times when we hear the word harvest as Christians, what do we tend to think of? When we think of harvest, what, what scripture passage do we generally, does that word trigger on in our mind? Can I help you? Look unto the fields, for they are white unto harvest. And most of the time when we think of the word harvest, we're thinking of the salvation of people. That there's a large group of people out there waiting to be saved. Go pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers. But here, the harvest is a picture of judgment. This is not talking about salvation now. This harvest, in fact, these two harvests that we're going to refer to, it's talking about the judgment of God. First is the reaping of the grain. That's in verses 15 and 16. It says in verse 15, another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap for the time is come for thee to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. That is a picture of the harvest of wheat. This is, these two verses they share the fulfillment of a parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. And you're familiar with this parable. It's the parable of the wheat and the tares. Do you remember that? A farmer goes out into his field and he sows, uh, he sows wheat into his field and he's expecting to reap a bountiful harvest. 
And when it starts, when it starts to grow, uh, he notice, he notices something has happened. Well, what has happened is an enemy came in and sowed among the wheat that he sold, sowed what the Bible calls tares. T-A-R-E-S. This is the parable of the wheat and the tares. The tares, most Bible historians believe, are a plant called the bearded darnel. It's very common over in all of Israel and that part of the Middle East. It is a rye grass that looks a lot like wheat as it grows. It looks a lot like wheat. The differences between those things really show up later as they're growing, but when they're initially coming up, the wheat and the tares look all the same. And the workers for this, for this farmer said, well, we'll just go out here. We'll just tear up all of those tares. We'll go ahead and pull them. And the farmer said, don't do that. If you do that, it's going to destroy some of the wheat. And so he said, wait for this until harvest and the tares will be gathered and separated from the wheat at harvest time. Matthew chapter 13, verses 36 through 43, Jesus explains the parable of the wheat and the tares. And he says, the wheat are genuine believers. The tares represent the lost. The wheat and the tares cannot be told apart as they grow. They look alike during the growing process. Both of them are tall, straight-growing plants. But the more they grow, the difference becomes more and more clear. That bearded darnel, as it, as it matures, it has, a, it has a horn on the top of it that develops a bunch of black seeds. In fact, those black seeds are poisonous. They can cause nausea and even death. But they, as they grow, that that uh, cob, maybe that's a better, maybe that's a better term. It's like a little cob. It just stands up straight. The wheat, as it matures, it develops on it co- its cob kernels of grain, kernels of wheat. And instead of standing up tall and turning black, these go, these grow to a golden or even white uh, in color, and they bend back toward the earth. So those. Those tares stand out when they're, when it comes time for harvest, it is very clear what is a tare and what is a wheat. Jesus said we're going to wait until the harvest time before we separate them. I think there's a good analogy to be drawn there. Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about when he chose that particular plant because the closer we get to the more, uh, the, the closer we get to the Lord Jesus Christ's coming, I believe the more distinctive Christians are going to become genuine Christians. There are a lot of people professing Christianity today that are going to fall away the closer we get to the coming of Christ. They're not genuine Christians. It's not that they're losing their salvation. It's what John said back in his epistle. They, they went out from us because they never were part of us. I, I know that there are those who believe that you can be saved and, and lose your salvation, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says they just didn't have it to start with. You go back to the parable of the sower, and you have that plant that initially when, it, when, it, when it's sown, the Bible says that it springs up, and there's a nice-looking plant there, and it looks right. But then the sun comes out, and it 
and it puts that plant to the test, and the Bible says it, it just withers up and drives away. Why? Because it was never it was never had a true root. We would say it never attached itself to the true vine. Well, Jesus is Jesus says in that uh, parable of the wheat and the tares, he said, we're going to harvest all of them. We're going to cut it all down, the wheat and the tares, but we're going to separate it. And he said, he said that they would take those tares and cut them down and they would cast them into a fire. God's judgment is coming. Second Timothy 2 says, the Lord knows them that are his and the wheat and the tares will be separated. That word ripe that we, that we read in verse number uh, 15, the very last word, that word ripe is, um, is the word, some of you are farmers, I'm not. Is there a word overripe? Before something goes bad on the vine, you would say it's not just ripe, it's overripe. That's, that's what that word is. The earth is bursting, ready for judgment. The, the earth is ripe for it here. You see, the harvest of sin has been ripening since Genesis chapter 3. It's just been getting worse and worse. The harvest of the tares has been growing since Genesis chapter 3. But God in his grace and in his mercy and in his long-suffering for these thousands of years has withheld his judgment. But the earth has been building toward this. The The iniquitous cup, has been getting fuller and fuller for thousands of years. And now it's time, the Bible says, for him to come. This is the reaping of the grain. He's going to come with a crown on his head, sitting on a cloud, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And he's coming for the harvest. So it's the reaping of the grain. And if that's not bad enough, if that's not a clear enough picture, I mean, you've seen the sickle, right? I mean, it's, it's a wicked blade. And its only purpose is to cut. You know, you can't hammer with a sickle. You don't drive screws with a sickle. It's got one purpose, to cut down. If that's not graphic enough, the Holy Spirit gives us a second illustration that begins at verse number 17. Another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle, And another angel, so in verse number 18, the third angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and uh, cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle saying, thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe, overripe, ready for harvest. Not going to get any many more ready for harvest. They are fully ripe. They are ripe to the bursting. So the scene here goes from the reaping of the grain to the reaping of the grapes. It switches from a field to a vineyard. What do we do with harvested grapes? What have they done? Well, as we read through this, it says in verse number 19 that they are cast into the great wine press of God. We've all seen the Lucy episode, haven't we? Right? I love that episode. Uh, she's over there in Italy, visiting in Italy, and those grapes are in that great big vat, and she's in there just stomping around. 
That's what happens with grapes in a wine press. The wine press in the old days uh, really consisted, well, may still today. I don't know how they do it today, but really consisted of two vats, one higher than the other. Grapes were placed in the upper vat. They were stomped on. The juice ran out of chute into the lower vat. The, the skins of the grape were held in the upper vat. In the lower vat, the juice, uh, the juice was collected. The picture is that these grapes are being crushed under the feet of those who are trotting them out. The world has rejected Jesus as the true vine. He's called the true vine in John chapter 15, and instead they have attached themselves to the the vine of the devil. They have drunk deeply of the wine of sin, rejected the Son of God, but one day that Son is going to come, and they're going to face him in judgment, and this is what's being described in verses 18 and 19, 17, 18, and 19. They are cast, did you notice that, verse number 19? They are cast into the great winepress of the wrath of God, a crushing of the world system and all those that hold to it. He's going to crush those grapes under his feet. Would you? I, I said a moment ago that these judgments are described all through the scripture. Would you hold your finger here and turn back to Isaiah chapter 63? Keep that picture in mind, if you would, of the winepress. Isaiah chapter 63, verse number 1. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This is that glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat or wine vat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment, for the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered... That there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury. And I will bring down their strength to the earth. Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 6, are describing exactly what you're reading in Revelation chapter 14. That's a violent picture. God is saying... I will have the blood of the people scattered on my clothes. This is going to be a terrible trampling. It's a terrible trampling. Jesus is coming in wrath. He's coming in judgment. And Isaiah 63 says there's no one that's going to escape this. No one to help. God's enemies will be thrown into the winepress of his wrath and be judged. So there's the Lord in his returning. And then there's the Lord in his reaping. A terrible judgment. The last thing is verse 20, the Lord and his reckoning. Reckoning is a math term. You know that. We we think it's a southern term. It's not. It's a mathematical term. I reckon. Reckon is to bring into account. It's to make an account of. And verse 20 concludes this incredible vision that John, John has shared with us. In chapter 14, verse 20 says, And this winepress was trodden without the city, 
and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. It's an interesting passage of scripture here. Let's start with the place of his reckoning. It says it's without the city. This is away from Jerusalem. Um, Without the city. If ever a Jew is talking to you and they say something about the city without naming it, chances are 99 out of 100 he's talking about Jerusalem or she's talking about Jerusalem. If all they say is the city, there's only one city to the Jew that matters. And here it says that this this judgment, this trampling out, and, and up to this point, it's this part has been relatively relatively meek, kind of mild, until he says when he stomps what's in the vat, blood comes out, not grape juice. This is judgment. He said it takes place away from the city. It doesn't say exactly where the event takes place, but I believe in, in comparing Scripture with Scripture, what's being described here is that great battle of Armageddon. Armageddon is a Hebrew word. Armageddon uh, is north of Jerusalem in the valley of Jezreel. Turn maybe one page in your Bible to Revelation sixteen sixteen. It says that he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. I think the... I think the battle being described in Revelation 16 is the same judgment that's taking place in Revelation 14.20. It's going to be a terrible battle, and it's taking place in Armageddon. That word means, literally translated, that Hebrew word Armageddon means the hill of Megiddo. So that helps us know where that place is. There's not a geographical place in the Bible called Armageddon. Armageddon is the reference to this judgment that's coming, but in the Bible there is a place called Megiddo. And so this is going to take place at the hill of Megiddo, the valley of Jezreel, the plain of Esdralon. There's a lot of different, uh, the valley of Jehoshaphat. This particular geographical place has several different names throughout the Bible, but they're all talking about the exact same place. It's north of Israel toward Galilee. And it's a massive valley. There's a lot of things in your Bible, Bible stories that you're familiar with have taken place in this place, the Valley of Megiddo or the Hill of Megiddo, the Valley of Esdralon. Do you remember uh, a man in the Old Testament, Barak and uh, and his cohort, Deborah? The battle they fought took place in this valley. You remember Deborah. I'd stay out of her way. I would not mess with that lady. Gideon defeated the the Midianites in Judges 6, 7, and 8. That valley of Megiddo is where that that battle took place. King Saul and his uh, his son Jonathan, they were killed in 1 Samuel 31 in the valley of Esdralon. King Josiah died in this valley in 2 Chronicles chapter 35. This valley of Jezreel, Napoleon Bonaparte said, is a natural battlefield. So it's not surprising that all of these battles that Israel fought and Judah fought would take place in this particular place. There's another battle that's coming to that valley. The Bible says that the armies of the earth, 
It's an interesting phrase. The armies of the earth are going to gather at this place, and their intent is going to be to destroy the king of kings. That's their plan. That's their big battle plan. Earth's final battle is going to be fought in this particular in this particular place, the battle of Armageddon. That's the place of his reckoning. Let's let's keep moving. The pain of his reckoning. The pain of his reckoning. Still in still in verse number 20, you have the word trodden in Revelation 14:20. Trodden means exactly what you think it means, to stomp with your feet. It means exactly what it says, to crush. It's a vivid description of what Jesus is going to do to all of those who have despised him and and rejected him. How many times have you read in Scripture, in different passages, all the way back to Psalms, but also in the prophets, how many times have you read throughout Scripture where it talks about till his enemies be put under his feet. That's what this is talking about. They're not just put under his, they're not put under his feet like a footstool. That's not what it's talking about at all. We misinterpret that back in Psalms where, where it says, till thy enemies be made thy footstool. And so what we see is every, every time we see the, the phrase used put under his feet, we make it out to be a footstool. It's going to be a crushing defeat. By his feet. The pain of his reckoning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 24. Look what it says about this this reckoning day. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 24 says, Then cometh the end. We are talking about that this morning. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he, Jesus Christ, must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifested that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. What is he talking about? God arranges this for the Son. God will put all of Jesus' enemies under his feet. He says, now, the one that put him under his feet, he's accepted, but everything else is going under the dominion of Christ. He's going to trod out his enemies. Someone said, we can either be held in his arms or crushed under his feet. Those are the only two choices you and I have. God's grace and God's wrath. So be sure of your salvation. The place of his reckoning, that's the valley of Megiddo. The pain of his reckoning is a crushing defeat. The permanence of his reckoning. The permanence of it. This troddening out of the enemies. What's being described here is total destruction. It's not a probation period. It's not a time out or, or a judgment that will later be lifted. This is the total defeat of the enemies of Christ. It is a violent and deadly image. Remember what he said there in, in Isaiah 63, 3? 
I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in my anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. This is going to be a terrible, bloody battle. Dr. Phillips, the other night, you remember what he said about the Battle of Armageddon. He said, really, it's not going to be much of a battle at all. God's going to, uh, God the Son is going to speak. When he comes for this battle, by the way, you remember how he's described. He's described, uh, well, let's just, let's just read this. Chapter 19, Revelation 19. Look at verse number 11. This is where Dr. Phillips gets his, this is where Dr. Phillips gets his thing because he says it's not going to be much of a battle at all. Jesus will say drop dead and all of the armies of the world is going to be slaughtered. How is that possible? It's because there is a sword proceeding out of his mouth, which is the word of God. The word of God is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Verse 11 of chapter 19, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Would you note verse number 15? It's just so consistent all the way through Scripture. And he hath on his vesture, verse 16, and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, And their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Well, I'm just telling you it's not going to go well. He might ride into that thing confident, but the beast is in for a terrible defeat. Verse 20 says, the beast was taken. And with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and then that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. What a terrible image this is. There's that phrase there at the end of verse number 20. The blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Interesting phrase there. That phrase has led to a lot of conjecture. 
this slaughter is going to be so great, if you take that verse literally, this slaughter is going to be so great that blood will flow four to five feet deep. And if 1,600 furlongs is taken literally, that's the space of 200 miles. What does it look like when hundreds of millions of soldiers gather together and are instantly slaughtered? They don't just die. I mean, the Bible's clear on this. This is going to be a one-sided but bloody battle, and all the blood is going to be spilt on the side of the Antichrist. What does it look like when hundreds of millions of soldiers are slaughtered with a sword? Well, the scripture said blood will flow four or five feet deep for 200 miles. You know what's interesting? The river basin system that runs to the Jordan Valley is about 200 miles long proceeding from the Valley of Jezreel. This is an incredible battle. Would you, would you read the words with me of, of Theodore Epp? He's got a book called, it's a two-volume work, Practical Studies in Revelation. This is what he said about the end of verse number 20. It is impossible to comprehend this. It has never been heard of before. But when the people of the earth gather into this land by the hundreds of millions Things like this are going to happen. The valley of Megiddo, the meeting place in the north, drains into the Jordan's system, which has sufficient distance to literally fulfill this prediction. Can you imagine that carnage? The answer is no, you can't. We've never seen. He said it's impossible to comprehend this. The world's armies gather in one last attempt in defiance of Jesus Christ, and he comes, and by his word, the sword proceeding out of his mouth, they are bloody, slaughtered, crushed like grapes in a wine press. In Revelation, those verses we read in Revelation 19, that battle's over. The Bible says that you and I are coming with him to this battle. But you're not going to need a weapon for it. There's only one sword that will be put to use that day. And it's the word of God that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Son of God. And it's a slaughter. Now that's a sobering passage of scripture. I love that passage of scripture today, didn't you? What the end holds for the saint? Oh, thank the Lord. But this, this is beyond comprehension. There has never been a, bla- a battle in history that looks like this. Did you know that Josephus writes that when general, the Roman general Titus came in and started slaughtering the Jews in the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, did you know that Josephus wrote that there was so much Jewish blood flowing through the streets of Jerusalem that it put out some of the fires that had been started by the Roman soldiers? That's a lot of blood. But it's nothing like is being described here. This is beyond our imagination. It is impossible to comprehend that type of devastation, but it's coming. It is coming. Say, Pastor, I, I just can't see how the world can get can get into that kind of shape, where it would be so unified against 
it would be so unified against Jesus Christ. Did you notice in 2020 how quickly the world unified around a cause? Like that. The world. Not just Europe. Not just NATO or the European Union. The world rallied around a cause in a matter of months. We have seven years in the Great Tribulation period. And during those seven years, the world is going to unify. And the armies of the earth are going to come to this little place in northern Israel. And at the end of that seven-year period, the world will be united by the hundreds of millions in this army. And their intent is to defeat Jesus Christ. And it ends in their bloodbath. Church, I am so glad you and I are on the other side of that, of that battle. I'm so glad it says that the hosts of heaven are coming with him on white horses, clothed in white, clean, fine linen. That's how scripture describes you and I in heaven, clothed in white, clean, fine linen. That's us on those white horses. We're not involved in this battle other than being spectators. This is what it looks like when God calls his court to order. It is a sobering Instance, you're saying, Pastor, this sounds, this sounds like God's going to go Old Testament. That's exactly what's going to happen. You ever heard that phrase before? They went Old Testament on them. This is going to be a slaughter. Do you remember those times when God, there, and there were certain tribes, not every tribe, but there were certain tribes that were inhabiting Canaan when God gave a very specific order to, to the children of Israel. You remember that? He said, go in there and kill every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. Kill all of their livestock. Anything that they have that's breathing, I want it slaughtered. And we sit back and look at that and we're like, boy, I just, that's a devastating pronouncement. That's what's coming. That's what's coming to this battle, this so-called battle. Of Armageddon, there will not be one surviving soldier. The blood's going to flow. Is it literally going to flow four to five feet deep for 200 miles? There's a good chance. There's a good chance. That's That's a picture we can't comprehend. I'm telling you, church, this is such a sobering, it's such a sobering but true book, the book of Revelation. Let it motivate you to be serious about telling people that you know aren't saved. Be serious about telling them about Christ. Don't miss opportunities to share the gospel with them. Right now, we are in a sowing mode. Not sowing with needles. We are in seed sowing mode. Sow the seed of the gospel. I remember Preston Kelly. Preston used to go here and we... Preston worked for a long time with a horticulturalist for Ford Motor Company. Or, no, oh, boy, I I hope Barb's not listening tonight. She is. They worked for GM. My sincere apologies, Preston and Barb. He worked for GM. But for a year or two, his assignment was to work with a horticulturalist. 
And we were talking one day about grass, growing grass. We, we sowed all the grass around here. And he said, Mark, he said, did you know that you can sow one seed of grass every square inch? He said, each seed of grass, he, can, he said, you can sow a seed of grass every inch. And your, your lawn's going to come in just fine. With the gospel, don't be that particular. Grab a handful of the seed of the gospel and just sow it generously. Don't sow it here and there. Every opportunity you have, share the gospel. Something pops up on TV. You have young children in your home and something jumps up on TV and it it triggers a thought in your mind about the gospel. Share it right then with your kids. Teach them, Deuteronomy 6 says. Teach them when you get up. Teach them when you sit down. Teach them when you lie down. Let your home be a place where the gospel is taught to your children. Our prayer, my and Terry's prayer, is that the homes of our children would be places where it's conducive for the Holy Spirit to bring our grandchildren to Christ. The home ought to be a place where the gospel is is learned. Your workplace, sow the gospel there. You say, oh, I work with a bunch of Christians. You work with people that are professing to be Christians, but some of them think they're saved and they're not. How do you know that, Pastor? Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that broad is the way that leadeth to destruction and many there be that find it. And he says that there are going to be a lot of people that show up on judgment day and say, Lord, we did wonderful works in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. That tells me there's a lot of people that think they're going to heaven today and they're not. They are going to be surprised that they're at the great white throne judgment and not the judgment seat of Christ. They're going to be surprised. They've been deceived. Share the gospel. Share it liberally. Grab a handful of gospel seed and just sling it out there. And wherever it falls, it's not going to be wasted. Take those tracks out there and leave tracks. Leave tracks with your tip at the restaurant. Not as a tip. Don't you do that. Let's have our church's name on them. Don't you sully the name of Jesus Christ or Faith Baptist Church by leaving them a track. Put a good tip in there, but leave them something that says Jesus loves you and wants to save you. Leave them. They're cheap. We'll buy more. Sow the gospel. You're not comfortable talking to people about Christ. Those tracks are a great tool. And if we buy a 1,000 of them and 999 of them get thrown in the trash, but one of them is read by someone who comes to Christ, we'll buy the next 1,000. Sow the gospel seed. Church, be generous with the gospel. A terrible day is coming. Terrible judgment's coming to this world. Pastor, I don't know if I fully believe that. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you believe it or I believe it. It's coming. It is coming, and it's not going to, it's not going to be stopped. Look, how, look how, how determined that passage in Isaiah 63 is, where God is saying, I am going to stomp these grapes, and no one's coming to help. It's coming, church. You and I have been the recipients of great grace. Amen. Tell people about it. She played that song tonight, Amazing Grace. Tell people about it. It is grace that is greater than all our sins.
The whole world needs to hear about Jesus. Are they going to accept him? Nope. Most won't. But they ought to hear about him. It's a sobering passage of scripture, isn't it? Let's go next week. Let's go next week to uh, chapter number 15. But take this message tonight, church. Take this to heart. That God's judgment's coming and it's sure. Children old enough to know right from wrong are going to be judged by Jesus Christ. It's not just 30 and 40 and 50 year olds being judged. It's 10 and 12 year olds being judged who know the difference between right and wrong. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And if a person can understand the concept of sin, then they are accountable then for their soul. Now, adults who've never come to be able to understand right and wrong, some of you have special needs relatives. I preached a, a message, a funeral message uh, last year for a 50-something-year-old man who died who never came to that age of accountability. I told his family, the way I understand Scripture, John's in heaven. That's, that's how I believe that. But to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin, then they need to be told about Jesus Christ. They need to know for sure that they're saved. Well, that's God's word for you this evening. When God calls court to order, it's going to be a terrible judgment. Let's do what we can to get people out of that line of fire. All right? Let's stand together and be dismissed. I appreciate you being here tonight. Go back and read. You know what would be valuable to you because we broke it up a little bit? Why don't you tonight, why don't you take time just to read Revelation 14 from start to finish. It's only 20 verses long. We took three or four weeks to get through it. But go back and just read those 20 verses from start to finish and be reminded uh, that there's an escape from all that. Right in the middle of that, right in the middle of that chapter, what's going to happen to the saints at the end. Thank the Lord for it. God, thank you for your word and thank you for the warnings and thank you for the grace that is promised and thank you for your long suffering. You didn't have to wait this long. Lord, you could have you could have come long before now. But you have a date in your head, Father, that you have established as the return of Jesus Christ. He's rapturing us out of here and then he's going to come later for judgment. And until that day comes, may this group of people here at Faith be good stewards of the gospel. We have this treasure in these earthen vessels. May it be shared with those around us, and may it be shared liberally. Thank you for each family that's here tonight. We pray your blessings on them, that you'd take them home safely, and that this week, when we have opportunity to share the gospel with a lost person, to encourage a brother or sister in Christ, that we would be tools in your hands to accomplish your work. We pray in your name. Amen. God bless you, church. Have a good week.